This is the Square Peg Podcast. And Cleveland, Ohio-based quartet, The Vums, officially getting us moving and rolling into the season with their hit Black Star. Check them out wherever you stream your music and on most social media platforms. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Many current and former world champions chase headlines with their outlandish behavior, ever chasing the glory that pay-per-view buys bring. Former IBF women's featherweight champion Jennifer Hahn, on the other hand, has stayed humble and has an interesting nickname for someone whose job it is to beat people up. Her nickname is El Paso Sweetheart. She also has the distinction of being the only world boxing champion, and actually now that I think of it, the only world combat sports champion from El Paso. I could go on, of course, but I'll just say welcome to the Square Peg Podcast, Jennifer. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you, Larry, for having me. You know, we, um, we've we been trying to do this for a while, and, you know, you're you're a professional athlete. You're a mother, most importantly. Uh, you also teach uh, full-time at your family's martial arts studio. I, of course, have my main full-time job. I do this. I work for the State Athletic Commission. Uh, and, of course, Bravo Mike Communications is good enough to, to produce me and to, to let me use their studios so all those all, all those things said, it's taken us a while to get here, but I'm glad you're here. And actually, it hasn't even been that long. We just saw you a couple of weeks ago uh, at the Pan Am Center. You're out supporting Sister Sister Stephanie. Um, you, of course, train at and teach at Hans Oriental Martial Arts. Um, now that we've gotten that out of the way, um, talk about how you got into to martial arts, how old you were when you started, uh, and what kind of arts you have participated and, of course, excelled at. Definitely. Um, my dad is Master Han. My brothers and my sisters and I have all trained together, competed together, and grew as a family together. My brother and I, my brother A.B. and I both started martial arts at the same time. I was five, he was four. He's 15 months younger than me. And we did all the traditional martial arts, karate, taekwondo, kickboxing, um, kung fu tournaments. It was a blast. We started competing. I was... I was actually 11 when I did my first martial art tournament, so AB was 10, and we enjoyed the karate, taekwondo, and kung fu tournaments. Then at at 12 years old, we got our first taste of kickboxing, and that was great because they didn't stop you to score. Not like point karate. Right. right. It wasn't point karate. It was uh, continuous, and that was so exciting. Me and AB had a blast. And then... Like I mentioned earlier, being a female, it was difficult to compete against females, so I usually competed against the guys. And there comes a time when the guys get tired of competing and losing to a girl, so I didn't get any more competition. About what age is that? So I was about Puberty-ish? 15. Puberty-ish? Okay, a little mm-hmm. bit, teenagers. And then uh, somebody had offered to do a boxing match with me, and I wasn't too comfortable with boxing because taking away my legs taking away one of my main weapons was a little bit um, not exciting in my opinion, but I was very wrong. Boxing was amazing. That opened huge doors for me. I won my first fight, fell in love with the sport, and took off from there. Um, My brother AB also did boxing with me, and he got a lot more um, amateur fights in the beginning. I learned early on that you have to travel if you're female, but traveling brought huge opportunities. I was a six-time national amateur boxing champion. I got to fight on the U.S. national team, traveled all over the world. With hopes of fighting in the Olympics, I had waited in the year 2000, 2004, 2008, turned pro in 2009, and had no regrets because women's boxing became an Olympic sport in 2012. But my weight class, the featherweight division, was not one of them. So no regrets. You know, you're... You, we've, you've, you've mentioned that uh, your father, Master Han, uh, has been teaching. Uh, he's had a school in El Paso for 40 years. How long has he been in the U.S.? He's been in the U.S. since 1976. Okay, so it probably makes pretty good sense that you were going to start training in martial arts. There just kind of wasn't probably not a, a, a question about that. And, and one thing that I found, actually, is, you know, I, I trained with uh, uh, Gracie Baja Las Cruces for a couple of years 
And um, you know that's actually a family-run business, uh, Professor Jacob and, and Angela, and they right. have uh, the six kids. All the kids are involved. Nice. It makes it so much easier when everybody's mm-hmm. involved. But mm-hmm. when when you are when you own a small business like that, and it takes up so much of your time, the kids are there anyway. Right. Um, did you? You said you started training. I guess when you were about five. Yes. Did you get to play any other sports when you were growing up? I did not get to play any other sports because my dad was very very strict, and he was very strict in the fact that. I could go to school and then I can go to the gym afterwards and that was my life. But that was not the same for my siblings. My brother AB participated in a lot of school sports. He did uh, basketball, football, wrestling, track and loved them all. And the reason he got that opportunity is my grandmother, my mother's mom, pushed for boys to do sports. Not that she was against girls, but she thought that AB should have the opportunity. And because of that, AB recruited my sisters and my younger brother Izzy into sports and Stephanie and Heather loved wrestling. They were, they went to state multiple times. Stephanie was a four time all American, two time state wrestling champion, got a scholarship to go to OCU and um, declined that uh, opportunity because she tore her knee in wrestling at wrestling nationals, had to get surgery, was out of competition for a year and came back and decided to stay here in El Paso because she got a presidential scholarship to go to UTEP. And I mean, for her, her life's gone in so, to so many directions, but she's very, very successful mother, very, very successful ath- athlete. And she's also a hardworking police officer. Well, we, we definitely appreciate that. And, and, uh, you know, I have a special connection to that community. I'm, I'm part of it as well. Absolutely. Um, not something we talk about explicitly on my show, but I also don't hide it. Um, now you have mentioned that you actually wanted to do some dance. You wanted to do ballet. Yes. Yes. So, um, I, I didn't choose martial arts. Martial arts chose me. My dad involved all of us in the martial arts as a family business, like you said. But if I had the choice, I would have probably done ballet growing up because, um, I think that's more, more my style. And like we were talking earlier, um, dance is a very uh, huge compliment to the sport of boxing, like fighters with Lomachenko, who, as a, I don't know how old he was when he was dancing. I think he was in his teens. I don't know. What I know is he had, first of all, he had over 300 amateur fights. Yes, uh, his father was his coach, but his father at some point in his childhood pulled him out of boxing and put him in traditional Russian dance, Yes, probably for more than one reason. The obvious is he probably, for just for cultural reasons, but... Um, the one that most people might not think of if you don't follow the sport of boxing closely is he now has the best footwork in boxing or yes. at one time was very known to clearly have the best footwork and you can attribute that very clearly to dance. Yes. I would say Lomachenko hands down has the best footwork and the best boxing IQ hands down. And you know, uh, I might've mentioned before I had to take a, well, you know what, one thing I hadn't, one thing I haven't told you is, so my sister Miriam, who's about a year and a half older than I am, danced ballet, tap, jazz from kindergarten up through high school. Wow. Uh, was the lead in her company's uh, production, ballet production, her senior year in high school. And there were a couple of years, you know, they always, there are a couple of male dancers, but there's always a shortage of men for right. all the parts they need. And so I did a cu- I appeared in a couple of uh, ballets, very small parts. But when I was in college pursuing my history degree, uh, I had to take a, a fine art, had to have a fine art credit. And I really wanted to take tap, actually. I still, actually, I still want to take tap dancing. And I, and I will um, when I have time, when I retire. Right. But um, they didn't have it the semester that I had set aside to fit in my fine art credit. So I took ballet. Um, I was the only guy. There was one other guy uh, in the class. So that was nice. Um, good scenery. Uh, <clears throat> but I got, I ended up getting an A. And the funny thing is, I also had to take a PE credit. And I took racquetball. And I got a B. So I actually got a better grade in my dance right. than I did, you know, but you've also mentioned it was a little difficult for you when you first start, when you first got into amateur boxing, because you had come from traditional martial arts yes. and then you went into kickboxing yes. and you like to use your legs. Yes. And that was kind of hard. But we also know, and I, again, I know this, <clears throat> did a little bit of boxing, you know, 20 or so years ago, but uh, just in this past year, <clears throat> When I started working with my, my coach, Carlos, over at uh, House of Pain here, um, gotten a lot more serious about it. And you, yeah. if you haven't done it, you, don't believe, you wouldn't believe how much your legs are. Yes. And all the, the, you know, the rolling and slipping 
and dancing and moving and, and keeping everything moving involves your feet. And that's why boxers do so much road work. Yes. Um, do you actually feel like, even though you felt like you lost something by not being able to use your legs, that you actually gained something? Absolutely. No. Um, in boxing, that's one of my biggest strengths is my footwork. But as a youngster, when I first transitioned into the sport, I was a little bit weary because I was thinking they're taking away one of my weapons. So that's what was hard for me. I was like, man, I can only use my hands. That's not going to work. But it's amazing what you can do in the sport of boxing. And you do use your legs, especially me. I don't stand there and brawl. You know, I'm I'm in and out. So And, and you know, it's funny because there are a lot of nowadays, uh, maybe not as common, but a lot of mixed martial artists, mart artists have a professional boxing match or two. Or kickboxing, and I always wondered, did you ever kind of forget that you're in boxing and almost throw a foot, throw a leg? So I'm I'm pretty good about not doing that because I had to wear shoes, boxing <laughs> shoes. But my brother Aby, I remember in a heated boxing match, he kept lifting his legs, and I was like, "No, Aby, no, don't throw a kick, please." But that's the only time I've seen one of my family members uh, attempt to do a kick. Now you you know we. In your in the intro, I talked about your nickname, El Paso Sweetheart. Uh, tell me how you got that. So um, when I had turned pro, I was begging promoters, local promoters, to put me on their fight card. And they weren't very interested in female fighters at the time, so it was very difficult. And then uh, Zephyrino, Zephyrino Promotions, put on a show in El Paso, and they added me on their card. And I got to meet him, and we had several conversations and he asked me about why I wanted to fight and, you know, what my goals were. And after getting to know me, he nicknamed, nicknamed me El Paso Sweetheart. And he had put it on one of his fight posters. I was um, the semi-main event. And that name has stuck with me throughout my career. And I guess when people get to know me, they they agree. It fits it fits, it def and it definitely does. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. While we're on the subject of nicknames, you know, you and I have talked before about how, I think A.B., I like his nicknames. Of course, Sun City Warrior uh, is more, you know, fitting of, a, of, a, of a, somebody who's a professional boxer and a, a combat sports athlete. But, of course, a Chino Latino I like is, uh, it, of course, it rhymes. And, um, you know, people in the borderland, I think it may make a little bit more sense uh, yes. to those of us around here. But now you talked about how you got into amateur boxing at some point you decide to go pro. Now, you train uh, with Louis Burke, who, yes. of course, has trained. You're not the only world champion right. uh, he has trained. How did you get involved with Louis? Because, you know, La Paz and Las Cruces are, I would call them sister cities. Yes. I mean, uh, I don't know if you live in the Northeast. It probably takes you, what, 30, 35 minutes to get up here? It takes me 40 minutes. Okay. So how did you get involved uh, with Louis as a coach? So Louis was actually training my brother as a pro, um, A.B., and A.B. was having huge success. I mean, he was with top rank. He, um, he, was, he was almost a world contender. A.B. was amazing. A.B. is one of the most talented fighters that exists. AB he has awesome. about 26 professional victories, doesn't he? Yes, yes. A lot of knockouts. A.B.'s, he's, a beautiful, he's beautiful to watch. If you haven't watched him, I, I hope he comes back because I think he still has something left to offer the boxing community. That's another talk, but anyway. That's another talk. Yes, yes. Um, AB was training with Louis. Um, he actually, in the amateurs, we had a coach, Mr. Jerry Wright. He was actually a boxing official for many, many years. Then he had passed away. And my brother um, went with Louis often because he was uh, helping Austin and Siju train. He was a sparring partner. And we're talking uh, former world WBA, 154-pound champion, Austin Trout. Correct. And Siju Shabazz. Correct. Uh, both Las Cruzans. Uh, also uh, been trained by Louis. Go ahead. Yes, yes. And um, I, Louis helped AB grow so much. AB was coming quite often to spar and train. And AB and Louis clicked, and they became a team. Louis helped AB um, get his top rank promotion. And A.B. was doing great. Um, he had a lot of knockouts. Like I said, almost world contender. A.B., I think he could still. I think he is one of the most talented fighters that exists. And then when I was fighting pro, I don't know if Louis was uncomfortable with females because he didn't have any females. He never worked with females. But um, I was not training with him. I was training on my own. And women's boxing is very, very tough. 
you train hard for a fight that gets canceled, you wait around. Sometimes you'll get called on two or three days notice to fight in New York or Las Vegas as a as an opponent. So it's very hard. Women's boxing is very, very hard. And especially when you don't have a promoter, which I didn't. And then um, I did get a manager. I went to Mexico to fight on a reality show. It was originally Todas Contra Mexico. Then later they changed it to Reto de Campeonas. And it was the most amazing experience I had as a professional fighter because I never trained with so many women that were in my weight class. And we were from all over the world fighting against the Mexican team. And the Mexican team was great too. I enjoyed it so much. The only thing I didn't enjoy was production because they had it in our mind that it was going to be a tournament style. It wasn't tournament. They did whatever they wanted. But besides that, it was a great experience for me. And that's where I got into contact with Luigi. Luigi was my manager. Um, I didn't like him at the time because I had fought his wife several times in the amateurs. So <laughs> in my mind, he was my enemy, but he wasn't an enemy. Um, and he um, called Louis Burke up and he was like, why don't you train Jen? I mean, you're, you're already training her brother. Why don't you train Jen? And Louis, I, I don't know what was going through Louis's mind. That's a question you'll have to ask him. But I, I think um, he was unsure because he'd never trained a female before. But speaking on Louis's behalf, I think he'll say that female fighters are um, probably more easier to train than the men because we put our whole heart and we listen. <sighs> Put your, oh, wow, uh, shots fired. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. That, so you mentioned being on this reality show in Mexico. I'm, you know, I've, I've, I've followed your career for a long time. And, and, of course, you're being local. You're in the local media a lot. That's something I actually didn't know and kind of leads me to something I wanted to ask you. So you did travel for the purposes of this reality show. Did you ever think it's – you know, I know that we, we talked a little bit about one of your you know, former stablemates, Austin Trout. And one of the things that has been talked about over the years is how he stayed in Las Cruces. He didn't move to Vegas Right. Or Philly or New York or L.A., one of these bigger hubs um, where there can be a lot of opportunities, not just competitively, but, you know, getting your face out there, endorsements. Mm -hmm. Did you ever consider it's even harder in women's boxing? And we'll get to this in a minute. Um, did you ever consider the, the, the need or the likelihood of, of going somewhere else to get better exposure, contacts? So women's boxing is not just hard here in El Paso. Women's boxing is hard everywhere. Now, recently... Um, I'm going to take a step forward. Recently, women's boxing has made a huge, a huge jump forward, um, especially with Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano and McKenna Mayer and Clarissa myself, Shields. Carissa Shields. I mean, um, we are getting the exposure that we deserve. We have deserved for many, many years. And they're putting us on TV, which is giving us the exposure that we really, really need. So women's boxing is doing better now. A lot better. But when I first started, women's boxing was the same everywhere. So, no, it never crossed my mind to move to Philly or Las Vegas or no. I I was home here in El Paso or Las Cruces, Las Cruces Juarez area. This is where I've always trained. When I fought in the reality show in Mexico, um, we went to Chiapas. I don't know if you've ever been to it's Chiapas. down in the jungles. Down yes, it's absolutely beautiful. Like, I, my... Uh, Thoughts of Mexico or what is, and I was like, Ugh, not too impressed. But when I went there, it was beautiful. The people are amazing. The food is delicious, and they love boxing. Oh, me uh, yeah, Mexicans love boxing. That that is second to soccer, probably. Uh, baseball, I know, is up there, but I know Mexico loves soccer. Now, early in your career, <clears throat> now I didn't see your pro debut, but you did make your pro debut up here at the Pan American Center I in did. Las Cruces. I did see you fight on a show. Um, and you can probably tell me what year it was. It was promoted by Sal Lentini. Uh, you fought on an undercard. Uh, David Rodriguez main evented. And the funny thing about that is he fought John Turlington for the second time. And I actually saw the two of them fight at the Don Haskins Center on an undercard. It was, it was uh, one man. No, who was it? Uh, Eric Morales? No. Uh... Anyway, there was on an undercard down there. And they fought John Turlington. And then he fought him again uh, here at the Pan Am. You fought on that undercard. Um what was it like making your pro debut? So I was very excited to make my pro debut. I lost my pro debut. <laughs> um, I didn't. Which have is interesting for somebody with the the fighting and combat sports pedigree that you have. Right, right. So, so 
One of the reasons I turned pro was as an amateur, I had dislocated my shoulder several times. I had surgery on my shoulder, became basically a one-handed fighter for six years. And um, as an amateur, it's not aesthetically pleasing to see a one-handed fighter. So I thought I got gypped a lot in my scores as an amateur. And so it was very frustrating. So I decided that, you know, I'll start fighting as a pro. I'll start no, fighting just, as a pro. Not necessarily. Just straight on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And um, when I turned pro, I didn't have I didn't have a coach. I didn't have a promoter. I didn't have a manager. I just turned pro. Um, I was doing it on my own. It was very, very difficult on my own. Um, Louis worked my corner because I needed a coach, and he was great. And the girl that I fought was Mia, um, Melissa Saintville, who was Mayweather's uncle's, uh, I guess, boxer at the time. And I guess they were also dating. They had a romantic relationship. And I fought one-handed because my right shoulder was still giving me problems. I thought I beat her one-handed. And I lost the decision. So it's interesting you, you bring that up. When you talk about um, losing your first professional fight, and I say that's inter interesting for a lot of reasons, but especially considering your, your athletic background and your background in, in boxing, um, which kind of leads me to you know something that you've been talking about and was actually kind of next on the things I wanted to talk to you about, the whole thing about women's boxing, and there's not as many of you. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, there are 17 weight classes um, from 105 up to heavyweight. I'm impressed that you know that. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's the same. And then you have four major world title organ four yes. organizations yes. that sanction you know world title belts um and there are just as many weight classes and just as many of the, the same four sanctioning bodies in women's boxing as there are in men's but there are a hell of a lot fewer fighters right which you know if if we under, if anybody who doesn't follow the boxing world or does follow the boxing world you know that somebody who comes into professional boxing with a good amateur pedigree um they don't fight anybody near their level for probably 10, 15 fights. Right. Part of it is there's not as many of them. They're that much better than everybody, but there's also a plan. I mean, their their coaches want they want to see you somebody they want to see you fight a banger. They want to see you fight somebody with good footwork. They want to see you fight somebody who who fights off their back foot. Somebody all, they want to expose you to all these different things before you get in. Right. You don't have that luxury as right. a female fighter because there just aren't that many people to match. Um I've always said that it's actually kind of a if you are uh, of the talent level, athletic level, like you are, where you are going to end up, you know, at a world title, be a world champion, or at least get a shot at one, you get to get there a lot sooner right? because there are just fewer fighters. Right. Definitely. Like Clarissa Shields. I mean, she was a world champion right away because of obviously her amateur background as being an Olympic gold medalist. But Twice. Yes. Yes. Like Clarissa did things that nobody, nobody did. And... She didn't have to wait long, you know, so she was a world champion immediately. Um, for me, I, like I said, when the pioneers of women boxing were competing, it was very difficult to get a match, one, because there weren't very many fe females. Two, promoters weren't willing to put us on. Um, three, nobody was willing to invest money either. So it was difficult. So my first fight I fought in, in Las Cruces, lost my debut, and then... My second fight, uh, I got called up as an opponent to fight in New York. I got a draw, and I beat this girl. And the best you can do in New York if you don't win is get a draw. That's that's like a win. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. But um, usually when you're brought into someone else's hometown, it's, it's so that you're on the B side. Um, after that, that's when I got my opportunity to go to uh, Chiapas. For the reality show. And even though you didn't know about it, um, that really brought me up in the boxing community. And then I started getting opportunities to fight. It was great. Um, and then Louis, Louis was working with me, so he sharpened me up. Now, you got to go to Korea. I did. I did. I, had you ever been before? I'd never been to Korea before. So Did, you take, did the family go just because? So my siblings didn't have their passports. But my dad and I went, and it was amazing. When I went to Korea, that was, I, I hadn't, I wasn't a world champion yet. So I was like, me and Louis worked so hard. We we're going to be a world champion 
El Paso's first ever, it was the most exciting time in my professional career. And when I went up to Korea, I, in my mind, you know, I was very naive and young and I was thinking, oh, well, I'm Korean, so they're going to treat me fairly. <laughs> my, to them, you're a foreigner. If you're not Korean, Korean, you are a foreigner. And even though I have the last name of Han, it doesn't matter. Um, my dad and I went, it was awesome. The food was amazing. I like, so did Louis you know go about, with you guys? Yes, Louis okay. went with me. Um, ben, Coach Ben Rodriguez went with me. Um, Rigo went with me. Like it, we, we had a good team. And when we went to Korea, I don't know. Well, you definitely know about making weight for boxing. So I was like, oh, I can't eat too much. But I'm ten days out. I'm gonna have one cheat meal, right? So the day I got there, I I had a cheat meal, and I was expecting to like blow up to like five pounds and have to lose five pounds for that week. No. That was the best experience I've had with weight in my entire career. I had three full meals a day. I was snacking in between, and I was underweight. 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 I was like, that's the difference between quality food and American food. That's amazing. That really is amazing. You know, it. we talked about how you do have opportunities in women's boxing because same number of weight classes, same number of belts, a lot fewer athletes. Um Took you a little bit longer than some, but 13 fights into your career, you got your first opportunity right. uh, for a world championship. Unfortunately, your opponent, Helen Joseph, had visa issues. Yes. So you ended up fighting for, I think, was it was it the IBF? I, I fought for the IBF Intercontinental Championships, and it was against Sarika Fatuma, who, in my fight experience, I've never fought someone more talented, more skilled. She was the most skilled fighter and the most experienced fighter I had ever fought up until that point. And Louis, this is all credit to Louis. Like, he is such an amazing coach. He trained me so hard for Helen Joseph, but we had such great sparring. Like, I was prepared for any person to step across from me and win. That's how good Louis trained me for my world championship fights. Like, um, I, Helen Joseph, she, it was such nonsense with the visa and stuff. They didn't tell us till three days before that fight. So we got Zarika Fatuma because she was training in Florida. But I knew about Zarika three days before my fight, before a supposedly a world championship fight. And all credit to Louis. Like, he had prepared me for anybody. Now, he prepared you for anybody, but what were, was there a major difference in, in had you, I don't want to ask, was there, were their styles very different? Yes. Okay. Yes. Helen Joseph is a power puncher, an aggressive power puncher who wants to take your head off. Zarika Fatuma is, she punches in so many different combinations. Her footwork is great, and she doesn't, um, she's not there waiting for that power punch. She's like, she's nonstop. Like I, I couldn't believe um, her pace. So completely different styles. Completely different styles. In any case, you you won that fight, and <clears throat> later that year, September 2015, Helen gets her gets her visa squared away, yes. and you get to fight for a world title, featherweight, 126 pounds, International Boxing Federation IBF strap in. The Don Haskins Center in your hometown of El Paso, Texas. Now, in a minute, I'll get to what it feels like to win a fight like that in your hometown. But because it was at home, did was there, did you feel like there was extra pressure on you? Were you were you more comfortable? Were you more nervous? So, um, yeah, when you when you get to that level, the pressure is real. The pressure is real, and um, I was extremely nervous because. Um, you know, you feel like like the whole community is behind you and you want everybody to be proud of you and, you know, your team, not just the El Paso community, the Las Cruces community, the Juarez community, we all trained together. Like it was, it was intense and it was the most rewarding, most fantastic experience of my life is winning the world title against Helen Joseph. Like it was something that it, it felt like it was so out of reach, but yet so close. And when you finally attain it, like, that was the best. So you you end up making four successful title defenses. Now, were you actually signed to a, a promoter at that time? Who promoted the fight in El Paso? So um, uh, there, 
It wasn't a promoter. It was one of our good friends. Um, hi. You're asking a boxer to remember names. Mm. So it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't top rank. It wasn't no. PBC, I think, just got started in 2015. Nope. So it wasn't a major. Um, nope. you know, Nobody in, was willing to invest in a world championship fight for a female. And a lot of that has to go with, and I'm just actually kind of learning a little bit more about this recently, sanctioning fees right. and getting people to come in and let you fight for their belt. Right. There's, we could do a whole podcast series about the the business of boxing, yes. uh, which I hate. I think yes. we all love the sport. Um, <laughs> we hate the business. But you, you had four successful title defenses, and then you decided to be a mom. Yes. Um, that's another thing that, that male fighters don't have to, to deal with. And I know this because I, I work with the Athletic Commission. Uh, I'm an official on site, and, you know, there's always a couple of random drug tests, but women always have to take a pregnancy test. Yes. Um, so you can't, you can't fight if you're pregnant. So right. you, you decide to take two years off. Did you feel like you stayed in pretty good shape during that time? <laughs> No. <laughs> so to be honest, um, when I got pregnant, um, professional boxing is very tough. Even though I had four successful title defenses, I was only fighting once a year my mandatory title defenses. Like I thought when I became a world champion, you know, people were going to be lining up for my belts. I was going to get fights like three or four fights a year. I was going to be, um, you know, making good money. I was defending my title once a year against my mandatory. That's horrible. That's horrible. I thought that my career would be booming and it wasn't and it was very frustrating because you work so hard to prepare for a fight then it would get canceled then you get an opportunity to go defend your title somewhere else it would get canceled um me and louis were working so hard and it's it's not cheap to be training and working that hard and when you're not getting paid that's all coming out of your own pocket and louis if i don't get paid he doesn't get paid so it's very very frustrating so I, I can't talk for Louie, but for myself, I was very, very tired of this game that we were playing. So once I did my fourth title defense, and I wasn't making money. <laughs> I love boxing. That's how much I love boxing because I could have been making more money at McDonald's than I was as a professional fighter. Um, I decided that it was time to hang up the gloves. And Louie was very, you know, he's very proud of me and he was fine with that. And um, I didn't announced my retirement, but I was ready to hang up the gloves. So I got pregnant. Um, my husband and I um, were enjoying the pregnancy. I didn't work out. I gained 75 pounds. Whoa. <laughs> I gained 75 pounds. Carlos didn't tell you this? No. So I gained 75 pounds, um, had my beautiful baby boy. And when I came back... <clears throat> When I came back, um, I had gained so much weight. So I asked Louie, I had developed plantar fasciitis, so I couldn't run. Couldn't run. It was so painful. So I asked Louie if I could just get in and spar with the guys because I needed to lose weight. And he was like, yeah, sure. And man, when you get, I don't know if you've ever gained that much weight, but when you gain so much weight, like everything changes. I had to learn how to punch again. I had to learn where my center of gravity was. Like it was different. What I thought I could do, I couldn't do anymore. I've spent much of my adult life gaining and losing the same 40 pounds. I've been good wow. for about a dozen years. I'm holding steady right now at 230. You look great, Larry. <laughs> Thank you, you. Look awesome. Thank you. Well, thanks to Coach Carlos. Yes, boxing, Carlos is boxing, amazing. Uh, burns a lot of those calories. We're coming up on actually almost exactly a year ago. Uh, you went over to England. Yes. And you went up two weight classes yes. to 135 to fight Katie Taylor. Yes. Uh, how did that come about, first off? Okay, so so when I came back with Louie and I asked him if I could just spar, he was like, yeah, sure. So he threw in all the guys at me, and I lost the weight. I lost the 75 pounds. And um, we, I he said that I looked so good. He was like, you should come back. So I talked to the IBF. They had given me um, nine, uh, because of my pregnancy, they had given me extra time to make a title defense. So I was never stripped of my title. Okay. And um, the girl I was supposed to fight for my title defense was the interim champion, the one who fought while I was pregnant. And she lost. <laughs> so, and I guess the other champion wasn't ready to fight me. I don't know what happened. So instead, um, my manager, Bob Spagnola, got me a fight with um, Jerry Seitz, who I knew from the WCL, the World Combat League, Chuck Norris's World Combat League. 
and Jerry Seitz is an amazing fighter. So I was like, all right, let's do this, right? So I fight her at 135, which was two divisions up. And it was awesome. I don't think I've ever looked stronger. But, you know, coming down from 75 pounds, you are stronger. And then um, then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do my title defense. Then COVID happened. And COVID really screwed things up. So baby number two came. In the meantime, while yes, I'm not fighting, might yes, as well, right? Yes. Baby number two came and I had Nolan. And right after I had Nolan, Katie Taylor's camp contacted me. And um, they're like, yeah, you want to fight? Um, I had Nolan in February. And they're like, do you want to fight in June? And I was like, I cannot lose 70 because I gained another 75 pounds for that pregnancy. I said, no, I can't gain. I can't lose 75 pounds in a few months. It's impossible. And I told them no. And then um, I talked to Louie about it. I was like, yeah. I told him no, no. And he's like, no, that was a good decision. And then uh, they contacted Louie and Bob, uh, I don't know, a little, shortly after June or July. And they're like, how about um, we give you this much time to lose the weight? And my family, Louie, Bob, and I all talked about it. And we're like, okay, you know, can we do it in three months? And we're like... Let's try it. We can do it in three months. We can do it in three months. So we set a goal. And I thank God that Louie and Coach Joe and my family and my husband were all there to support me because um, losing weight, even though I had already lost it the first time, I had nine months to do it. I lost that weight in nine months. That was reasonable. To, but, it makes sense. Right. Nine months to put it on, nine months to take it off. That was reasonable. And I, I was able to do that successfully, and I've never felt stronger. But the short amount of time I had with Katie Taylor, that was stressful. That was very, very stressful. How soon? Because I remember I was surprised to see we were on vacation uh, visiting my dad in, in northern Virginia. And I saw it on the Internet. And it, we were talking maybe five weeks. You were, it was early August. Right. And so how, how far, how soon did you know about it before it went public, before you guys made uh, the announcement? So... I think I found out about it in June. Okay. In June. I want to say June. I could be wrong, but I want to say June. Or Louis found out about it in June. And, excuse me. Um, yeah. We So we, we set up a plan and we succeeded. But in my honest opinion, that wasn't my best performance because um, we were more focused on making weight than anything else. And it, so it's interesting you say that more more focus on making weight and you're yet you're fighting nine pounds over your normal right uh, featherweight you know featherweight uh, limit. Um, you touched before about going up to New York and being the B fighter right um, fighting in somebody else's backyard right. Um, they don't hide it as much as you think they might, but you go over there and 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 Katie Taylor is a contract fighter with Matchroom Boxing uh, Eddie Hearn's promotion yes uh, based out of England where he yes. is. Um, and you also, um, just earlier this year, uh, you went and you had another uh, shot at a at back down 130 pounds, a little bit closer where you're normally fighting, um, with another fighter, with Michaela Mayer, um, and that was going to be WBO, WBO and IBF. What does it feel like going in, not only geographically, you know, all the way over to England, I know you fought, you know, Michaela in, in, in California, and that was a top rank. Right. Um, at the end of the day, you're traveling away from home to fight for somebody else's title and it's their promoter that's bringing right. you in. Their promoter doesn't want you to win. Absolutely. Is it weird? Did you, I would imagine you had a face to face with Eddie Hearn. At some yes. Point. Is there, is that a weird interaction knowing that he's bringing you in, he's giving right. you more exposure. You're going to get, it's going to be a good payday, a decent purse. Right. But at the end of the day, he wants you to lose. Yes. The promoter <laughs> of the fight wants his fighter to win. Yes. What's that all? What's that about? What's that like? So, I, I mean, it's not like, uh, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, um, polite, but you, you can feel the energy. You can feel it's, it's almost tangible. You can feel that he's there supporting his fighter and that you are, like you said, we're, we're the B side. We're just brought in to be an opponent. And, um, it's for me, like, especially with all the experience I've had in boxing, the pressure and the negative energy doesn't phase me at all. Even the crowd doesn't phase me at all. I, I, when I first started boxing, like I was so impressed with 
with my teammate Austin Trout fighting, you know, in these huge places against Miguel Cotto, against uh, Canelo Alvarez. Well, when like, he won, when he won the belt from from Canelo's younger brother Saul, he yes. did it in Mexico. Yes, yes. That's you want to talk about going in a hostile yes. territory. Yes. Oh, yes. You know, you and then of course you go earlier this year. Like I said, you went and fought Michaela Mayer in California, and that was on a top ranked card. Right. So that's Bob Arum. Um, now, of course, you know I'm a I'm a big boxing mark. I watch both of the fights. Um, right. You know, unfortunately. It, wasn't any surprise to anybody with what the scorecard said. Right. Uh, you got bested by both fighters. I know, you know, another thing I think is, think is weird. A lot of times when, when they'll announce the winner in England, a lot of times they don't even give the the, the scores. Really? I, I, and I'm almost positive. I was a little surprised when you fought Katie Taylor. They just gave the score overall. They didn't give what the judges, and it was a unanimous decision. There was right. something weird about it. But I don't. I don't think that it was a surprise to anybody. Probably not a surprise to you. No. You know when you lose a fight. Yes. Uh, men are a little bit. Nobody ever admits unless they got knocked out. You lose. You lose a decision. I've never heard one male fighter interviewed after a fight and say, "Yeah, I lost." Right. Everybody right, right. thinks they won. It wasn't my best performance, and um, given my circumstances, I don't. I don't feel bad about it because it wasn't my best performance and it was against two champions that were not in my normal division. And it was huge, huge opportunity for me to fight the best of the best in different weight divisions. So I have no regrets and it would have been nice if it would have happened when I was younger right? and not after my pregnancy, but you don't always get what you want. So it is what it is, but that I, I have no regrets. I'm very proud of what I've done in my career and I know what I'm capable of. And like I said, I wasn't my best. Now, you know, uh, going into what they call the championship rounds, rounds 11 and 12, you, you know, you're down, you know, you're losing the fight. You so know what you need to do. For female boxers, it's nine and 10. It, okay. You're right. <laughs> e- either way. So you're, and thanks for correcting me. And, and you guys fight two minute rounds. Yes, sir. At the end of the day, you go into the last few rounds, you know, you're down, you know, you're losing the fight. You know what you need to do to win. Right. Um, but what if it was a much closer fight? How do you feel? I know that WBC is the only body that has open scoring. And right. I know from, from men's, I know when Austin Trout lost to Canelo, right. um, they, they give the scores up to the fourth and the eighth round. Right. Are you a fan of open scoring? Um, no, I'm not a fan of opening, open scoring. I think, um, I think it, I don't know. I mean, I see the advantages of it, but personally, I'm not a fan of, a fan of it. Um, it changes your game plan. It changes your style. And sometimes the judges don't score the way the fight goes. So No. <laughs> so I, I'm just, you know, like sometimes your best performance needs to be what you and your coach have been training and you just need to implement it during the fight. And sometimes the decision's not going to go your way. But um, I think open scoring messes. With your head? Yes. You know, along the lines of, you know, I talked about, People not, you know, male fighters especially will never agree with a decision. If they lose by decision, they will never admit they lost. Did you see the Katie Taylor-Amanda Serrano fight? I did. Talk about, number one, talk about a big day for women's boxing. They main-evented a pay-per-view card at Madison Square Garden. That is the Super Bowl of, I mean. Absolutely, absolutely. That was fantastic. Like, I am so glad that that fight happened. There was such a long time waiting. And... What a fight. That was so great for women's boxing. I will say this. I, you can edit it out if you don't like it. Um, so Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano. If it was anybody else, that would have been a knockout. If it was anybody You're talking else. Talking about the fifth round, I think. Yes. Or um, if, it was, if it was maybe three-minute rounds. That's true. That's true. Maybe she would have actually succeeded in actually getting the, getting the job done. Yeah, absolutely. But... If it was any other fighter, I promise, any other fighter, that would have been a knockout. So that's you're talking about how tough Katie Taylor's chin is. Yes, yes. What did you think of the decision? So I'm going to be honest. So I, I think um, Amanda Serrano, so before I get into the decision, I think the decision was fair. I think the decision was correct. And the reason being is because Amanda Serrano, she hurt Katie Taylor in the fifth round. Like, it was so obvious. Like, you saw Katie, um, Katie's eyes rolling in the back of her head. Like Possible was, ten eight round. Yeah, I haven't absolutely. seen you. I, you can and you can find the them online. Were. I don't know what the scores were, but if if it was anybody but Katie Taylor, they would have had they the referee would have stopped that fight. I'm sorry, anybody would have been stopped. 
But because it was Katie Taylor, they gave her the benefit of the doubt. And um, but after that, you know, it's a fight. I think that was the first time in Amanda's career that she was hurt. I believe that Katie Taylor hurt her because everybody's like, why is she slowing down? You don't slow down like that unless you're hurt. And then she didn't continue going after Katie till later. So that, I don't know if it was the sixth round or the seventh round. I can't remember because I'm a boxer and I don't remember all the rounds. But anyway, um, I know Amanda was hurt or she would have gone after Katie because if you've seen Amanda Serrano fight in the past, like she is a hunter. She goes for the kill. And she didn't because I think Katie had hurt her. And Katie is a true warrior because even after taking all that punishment, she came back strong and she finished strong like a champion. And you have to take you have to take it away from the champ. And Amanda did so great. Coming back from the yes. the bad round, the fifth round. Yes. I you know, I you know, you obviously because of your experience in the ring and everything, you you're seeing things I'm not seeing. I personally was was really disappointed by the decision. I thought that Amanda Serrano won. But the biggest thing was she didn't protest. She didn't when she got interviewed, she's like, I don't know if if she, you know, obviously is a respectable fighter in her own right. I don't know if she felt like she was just happy to be there. Um, I don't know if she, I, I don't know what her thinking was. She was very gracious in defeat, not like a male fighter. Right. She didn't pull any, you know, she, I don't know if you saw what Joshua did last week after he lost to Usyk, throwing the belts over. The, I mean, all that stuff. She was she was very gracious in defeat. Um, I'd love to see a rematch. I know oh, that's yeah. not on the, I don't, I don't think that's been talked about. Um, we're kind of getting to where we need to wrap things up, but I do want to go back. Uh, we opened up with talking about your, uh, your nickname, um, and how it's a little bit odd, but I, I can't tell you how, and of course I've known who you are for a long time. It's not until really fairly recently that we've interacted, um, you know, on a personal level, but you don't have the big head. And you, uh, I know Louis is your coach, but it looks like for the, at least for this last training camp, you, you worked with Coach Joe on your, your strength and conditioning. Yes. You know, coach Joe is affiliated. He's associated with the gym where I train at House of Pain. Um, come in in the morning several times during your training camp, and you're there with your, your friend uh, who also Corey, trains with you. Yes. And, hey, how you doing? What's up? It's just, right. you're so humble. Thank you. Um, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an old man pushing 50 just there to stay in shape. And maybe possibly get a fight at the Battle of the Badges next year. All right. Um, but, and you're this former world champion, but my little girl was with me one time. He's hi to her. Right. You know, um, I just, you know, that's, it's indicative of who you are and the, you know, uh, the, the name fits. You know, the local combat sports community is everybody kind of knows everybody. Right. Um, but you guys really have very much the same type of energy. Right. Absolutely. I think um, all of the above. I mean, we are a very tight-knit community. We have a great coach. We have great families. We are who we are. We're real. We're not We're not like some untouchable person. We're, we're who we are. And Brother AB, too, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of hearing him talk your ears off, but we're real people. Yeah, just cross paths a little bit. You know, the last couple, couple times I've worked uh, on the same cards that your sister has fought. Um, I think he's a little bit, you know, he general impression from a distance looks a little, little more reserved right uh, than you're a little bit quieter but um you know you're if i'm not mistaken you're 38 i'm 39 you're 39 <laughs> um ancient right oh, i got almost I 10 great. years I on you uh, and you you're still in, still in fantastic shape Thank jennifer you. I appreciate um you you said something earlier i don't remember exactly what it was oh something when i was fighting professionally you haven't made any serious decisions about anything or so right now I'm enjoying being my sister's punching bag. Um, I hope that I get an opportunity. It has to be a good opportunity. I'm not going to fight just to fight. But if I do, then we'll see what the future holds. And if I don't, I have no regrets. I did Boxing was so good to me for 23 years, and I'm still going to be involved in it. It's never going to leave me. I'm going to, like I said, continue training with my sister, helping her be great because she's going to be great. Now, are you involved in the like kind of the world boxing community? Or do you go to the IBF convention and So I've been to many of the WBC conventions and many of the IBF conventions and um I don't know if I'll go this year because my children are still young and they kinda need their mama right now. But um I'm always gonna be involved in the boxing community. I was especially involved as an amateur. I was the VP in Border Association. I was the JO chair for many years. I got to 
coach the Junior Olympic boxing team in Russia back in 2012, where we had fighters like Shakur Stevenson, we had Edgar Blanga, we had all these amazing fighters that are now world champions. So I might go back to coaching amateurs. Um, I always wanted to be an Olympic coach, so that might be a future goal. We'll see. You know, the, and of course, the other thing, uh, the other kind of obvious, if you will, um, you obviously have a name, you have the experience, you know boxing, you're articulate. You know, you have all of the things. Um, has broadcasting ever been uh, proposed? It hasn't, but promotion, promoting being a promoter has. Um, we'll see. I mean, I'm still young, so we'll see which doors open, and I'm open. Hey, and female promoters are not unheard of. I know Teresa Tapia. Uh, I've worked for her before. Uh, she just started doing her thing here in New Mexico. Um, Jennifer, this has been so fun talking to you. I really thank you so much for coming in. I'm glad we've been able to do this. I look forward to... Uh, Working, if we ever get a chance to work together, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I love seeing uh, Stephanie get her opportunities. Uh, I know that she's established a good relationship with Isidro. Yes. Um, who promotes a lot of fights here. Uh, yes. You know, I think he's got a, a deal here for four fights a year in the Pan Am. Uh, we'll cross paths again. I'm I'm really glad to see all the good things that have come your way. Uh, and I and I hope more of them come the come your way, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed you have enjoyed the season five premiere episode of the Square Peg Podcast as much as I have. Uh, make sure you tune in every Tuesday this fall, starting Tuesday, September thirteenth. Of course, that's today. Um, but every Tuesday we'll have a brand new episode. I'm Andrew Lawrence. This is the Square Peg Podcast. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. And now, here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. La Pignon is the only full-service sexual assault and child abuse response agency in southern New Mexico, located in Las Cruces and serving Doñana, Hidalgo, Sierra, and Luna counties. All services are bilingual, bicultural, and all free. La Pignon offers a 24-hour crisis hotline, connection to community resources, counseling services, medical services, victim compensation, prevention education, and their Kid Talk warm line for kids 17 and under. La Pignon's mission is to provide comprehensive services related to prevention, intervention of assault and abuse to individuals, families, and the community. Sexual assault affects one in four females and one in six males by the age of 18, so it is important we start by believing and educate our communities on how to help. As a community, we must encourage people to report child abuse, and even if you just suspect it, you can report it to local law enforcement or the Children, Youth, and Families Department. We must have the conversations about importance of consent. Yes means yes, and everything else means no. Remember, it starts with us, and we all play a role in preventing violence in our communities. La Pignon can be reached at 575-526-3437, or visit them online at lapignon.org. You can also find them on social media at La Pignon SARS on Instagram and Twitter, and La Pignon SARS on Facebook. The Square Pack Podcast. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo My Communications.